Coming up on this week's A Lively Experiment, the housing crisis in Rhode Island intensifies what can be done to expand the housing stock. And what role will younger voters play in this year's presidential election? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their insights, Nancy Lavin, senior writer for the Rhode Island Current, Bill Bartholomew, founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast, and political contributor, Raymond Bakari. Hello and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. A week-long series this week by WPRI Channel 12 highlighted what many people trying to find housing at an affordable price already know. It is rough out there. And despite the state dedicating hundreds of millions of dollars, the situation isn't getting better and likely won't for some time. Uh, that's a pretty grim assessment, but probably pretty straight on. First of all, the Channel 12 piece was great, uh, the series of pieces. But, Bill, you, you've been all over housing for a very, very long time. So your thoughts? My thoughts are, first of all, I agree the Channel 12 work is excellent. Look, there are so many different challenges happening simultaneously when it comes to housing in Rhode Island that it's almost like playing whack-a-mole. But the, the key right now is to identify what those major challenges are and have a long-term strategy to address them. This isn't an overnight solution. We've, we've clearly seen that it's going to be a 10-year type of plan. The biggest area right now, no question about it, is at the municipal level, at the zoning level. And it's not just rural communities that are saying, well, we don't want to build skyscrapers in the middle of Beaver River Road in Richmond. It's also the urban core and thinking outside of the box, whether it's accessory dwelling units or adaptive reuse, these are the things that in the immediate timeline we need to start implementing. I think uh, one of the other big challenges with housing is when we think about what is the best sort of financial tool or incentive tools to pay for it. You know, uh, Housing Secretary Pryor has asked for and the governor has included in his budget $100 million borrowing to stimulate new housing. But the estimate on how many actual new units that's going to generate is, according to RIPEC, I think it's like 800, which is pretty low. And again, we already know that the housing that we're trying to work on is, you know, several years out in, in the pipeline of actually happening. Um, so it doesn't seem like there's a good sort of or a clear way to subsidize or to incentivize affordable housing, dense housing, creative types of housing that is, you know, good bang for our buck and can happen somewhat quickly because we need it now or Yeah, yesterday. quickly is a relative term, <laughs> isn't it? I, I agree with Bill. There's the zoning issue. Um, when I was reading the stories by WPRI uh, in that series, the building permits issued went from 7,000 in the 80s to just 12, less than 1,200 in 2023. And then now looking ahead, there's a lot of legislative priority on this issue. Speaker Shikarchi is going to be introducing legislation this session to take on the issue. And then there's already been bills passed last session. And then uh, Rep Speakman's ADU bill, the accessory dwelling units bill, passed the House. So just looking ahead, those are going to be uh, priorities definitely within the General Assembly and then also Rep Newberry has a, a bill that he recently introduced that's going to authorize a conveyance tax to deter the big corporations from buying single-family homes and then just as a Gen Zer myself looking at this whole issue of housing it's gonna to be tough for my generation to afford a home 
Yeah, and there's been issues. You, you did a piece a couple of years ago in Newport about where Airbnb set in, and and that was what Newberry also talked about too. Short term, trying to trying to make sure this doesn't just go into short term rental, that it's long term housing. Well, that's absolutely one of the driving causes of the housing crisis. And it's stunning that a Republican would be. I mean, you would think that would be hands off in government, but I thought that was a creative. Well, it's gone to a point where it's what I call runaway capitalism. And you have situations in Newport where there's some people who own 40 or 50 buildings and they've become micro hotels. Not only does this take away housing stock, this also transforms those areas that were once residential neighborhoods. Now they're essentially commercial strips, oftentimes unoccupied in the middle of the wintertime. So as we highlighted on Rhode Island PBS Weekly a few years ago, and as I've kind of re-engaged with in recent months on, on Bartholomew Town, this is a problem that, again, the municipal regulation is really where this is going to be resolved, but there's not an appetite for enforcement. That's the big problem right now is it's, you know, okay, we'll do it if we get a fine or something like that. We're still making a ton of money off of our Airbnb, so it's worth the risk. Couldn't, and that's a problem. Couldn't we see, though, the municipal pushback? Because the Speaker put through a whole slate of bills last year. There are some towns that are already trying to do workarounds. And the Speaker said it's state law, but they're getting pretty creative in saying we don't like a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely pushback, and, and that is uh, the pushback is why the accessory dwelling units bill, which was the one from uh, Speaker Shikarchi's housing package that did not pass last year, that's why it failed, was the pushback. And that I, was on the Senate side. Right. Um, but the pushback was from the cities and towns saying, we don't, this is too complicated, we don't like this. Um, I do think there is a bona fide argument in some of those cities and towns. A lot of them, um, I just covered a story about an oyster farm in, in Tiverton, so kind of unrelated, but it came up that Tiverton has... I don't think they've had a, a permanent town planner in more than two years. Like a lot of these small towns or even larger cities don't have the staff to sort of deal with what is now like 13 new laws that relate to permitting and regulation and enforcement. Um, I think I think there's some le legitimate concerns about sort of the staffing, the administrative costs, that there's not a ton of guidance about how to do this. It, it's a little bit to me similar to what happened with solar farms where um, one guy in, in one town, I remember when I did an interview years ago, said we got caught with our pants down. They, no one was really prepared for this, and then they, all these solar farms kind of came in, and the cities and town planners didn't have regulations on the books, didn't know what to do, and now they're being told these are the state laws you have to follow, but they don't have the staff or sort of the step-by-step -step rule book on how to do it. Well, it's what was going on uh, 35 years ago, almost 40 years ago in South County. I did a big Sunday magazine piece when I was with the Journal. In South County, they didn't have the zoning laws. You know, you're from down That's there. Right. And all the Long Island people were coming in, as they do now. But they, all of a sudden, the horse was out of the barn. It was like, oh, now we really should pass zoning laws because they're putting up these huge monstrosities. And I think it was a wake-up call, in a way. So here it is, history repeating itself. And even building the housing uh, aside to meet the demand, the rents are out of control. Then there's advocacy, you know, providence to implement some form of rent control. That's a whole other side of this issue, of this issue that can be worth a panel in its own. Yeah. All right. Uh, to be continued. Uh, RIPTA continues to be a source of discussion. Uh, there's a discussion actually about moving the bus hub from Kennedy to Plaza over to a um, 
uh, a parcel over on the old 195 land in the jewelry district. Uh, not sure that's going to happen. Meanwhile, they're facing tremendous uh, financial strain. They've, they've plugged some money this year. You wonder, Nancy, for the long run. Ripta. It's they've got a lot of this, and then we understand ridership's down, so they're cutting roots. So it's almost like a death spiral. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, my impression of the the proposed service cuts is not necessarily that ridership is down, but that they can't. There's a driver shortage, and now they've entered into this new agreement where they're going to pay more. So hopefully that could hire drivers that they would not have to have these emergency cuts. Separate from that, they have this huge sort of budget shortfall. Separate from that, they may be moving their bus hub, and um, you know the, that's going to come with a cost. Um, we don't know because they haven't picked a place yet what the final cost is. There was a $35 million borrowing proposal approved in 2014, but that's not going to cover the whole thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think one of the things that people have been saying, so I'm definitely not the first, and I won't take credit for this, is to think about whether a public transit agency is a revenue generator or a service. And I think that's sort of the conflict. A loss between leader. A right. conflict, there, there's conflicting viewpoints about that. And that seems to be a lot of where people are butting heads is whether RIPTA should be able to pay for itself or whether it should be sort of helped out by our government with the understanding that what it's doing is a service, not, you know, a financial revenue generator. And if you take a look at the breakdown of revenue at RIPTA, it's only a fraction of total revenue that comes from actual rider fares. So it really is a federally or grant-based type of, as you say, loss leader. And I would, I would agree that the driver shortage is a key factor in terms of shortening or reducing services. Rhode Island has to ask itself a, a basic question. Does the state want to become a multimodal transit arena? If the state wants to, it not only requires expansion of RIPTA in certain places or a revision of RIPTA as currently constituted, it also is going to require maybe some light rail. It's going to require more access for bikes and pedestrians. These are all long-term type of strategies that would have to be implemented. It's not just going to simply be, all right, RIPTA runs, you know, from Boroughville to Providence every single day, and now anybody who works in Providence that lives in Boroughville is going to decide to take the bus. That's not going to happen. You have to meet the moment and the people who need that service, whatever it may be. Can you imagine if we had light rail coming in from the East Bay? I'm trains on be, Trains would be packed every day. On the topic of RIPTA's financial um, issues, I saw on Twitter the other day, or X, I should say, uh, uh, State Rep Karen Alzate from Pawtucket is introducing in the Appropriations Bill to ask for $78 million to be allocated to RIPTA, so perhaps that could potentially help the financial problems in the short term. I also wonder... There's this struggle at the top now. You have Peter Alviti who has come in, and he's, you know, a lot of the, the, the bike people don't like him and the transit people because he's kind of like, let's fix the bridges. He's got his own vision with bridges these days. But he's aligned with Senator, uh, Senate President Ruggiero. So that doesn't help at all where you've got strife within the board, too, and trying to get a direction of where's this agency going to go. And the rip to ride out tension really... Um I think kind of bubbled over with the bus hub because originally, maybe three years ago, RIDOT was in charge of relocating the bus hub. They had this three-part multi-hub that they wanted to do and everyone hated it and also didn't like just the way that RIDOT's meetings were held. There was no opportunity for public comment. They don't have like an elected board in the same way that RIPTA does. So there was a lot of complaints about the transparency. And so at the time that that plan was scrapped and the search for a new alternative, which has now yielded several iterations, began. The 
proposal was kind of shifted from RIDOT to RIPTA. But then last year, of course, as we saw, Alvidi was made the chair of the RIPTA board. So there's kind of this, like, um, definitely for riders, I think, and, and for community groups, there's a, there's a clear distinction, and it matters who's in charge of, of these projects. Um, and, and there's some tension there. You, you wonder how those meetings go, because he's not a big fan of uh, Scott Abedesian, who's running RIPTA. And so you, that kind of tension sometimes, I'm sure, boils over into the meetings. Um, the Washington Bridge, the saga continues. Uh, we've had new news on it every week. I think it's pretty clear that we're going to need a new bridge. Raymond, I know we were talking about this before. It seems like Governor McKee tipped his hand uh, in a meeting with the president this week, right? <laughs> yeah, so I saw this on Twitter when you tweeted it, or posted it on X. i got to get used to that, by the way. Yeah, don't um, just call it. <laughs> Elon Musk isn't going to sue us. So yeah, it's going to take another, it's Rhode Island. It's going to take another five years to call it something different. Yeah, we're still calling it the Duncan. Some folks call it yeah. the Civic Center. But anyways, back to the point. So um, you tweeted out, I saw that Governor McKee said he told President Biden we're going to need a bridge, which was a big surprise and, you know, just a big headline because at this point in time, we technically still don't know if it has to be outright replaced or repaired. And then, you know, sticking with the theme of uh, talking about bills and legislation, uh, House Majority Whip uh, Rep Kazarian is introducing a bill that's going to require the monthly reports from RIDA of the status of what's going on. And then on the Senate side, I believe it's um, Val Lawson who's introducing a bill of a similar nature. So, you know, just further developments on this story day to day. This is the first time we've had you on since, <laughs> since it, it, and I know you live in Providence, but I'm sure there's back and forth. How do you think this has been handled? So, thankfully, I haven't had to be on, had had to go to East Providence. Have you not crossed the bridge at all? Oh, one Rhode Islander hasn't gone over the bridge. I lucked down. Thanks. Right, we shouldn't have asked you as a panelist. You got to go right now. We got to get somebody in from the East Bay. <laughs> yeah, thankfully I haven't been on it yet. Actually, there was one time I was going to go to the Best Buy and see Conk, and I was like, eh, I'll go to Warwick. <laughs> well, that ripple effect, a lot of people don't want to go. Look, I, I've said it since December. You're not going to tell me that a bridge that was supposedly inspected and passed inspection in July somehow in December of that same calendar year has gone from totally fine to now on the verge of demolition. No chance, no real world scenario does that take place. Ask any engineer, any inspector, any layperson. Not, not a, a, a candid moment in any way, shape or form. So now it's becoming a reality. We know through reporting that the recommendations from the experts on the bridge are pretty dire, right? The question now is, how significant is this problem in terms of the piers that are in the water, keeping this as simple as possible, in terms of the post-tensioning system on that bridge, and then what other pieces of infrastructure have fallen through the cracks the way that this one did? This is a failure of government. There's no other way to spin it. It's a major headache. And it's, to be completely honest, I think it's been handled pretty poorly in terms of its presentation to the public. Wouldn't you think the piers, though, they're the one, the salt water, salt kills everything. Wouldn't you think those would be, you would be concerned about? And ironically to me, I'm not an engineer, it seems odd that though, of all things, those seem to be in pretty good shape. It, it is interesting. And with ground penetrating radar, the work that's being performed on the bridge right now, as I understand it through reporting, is basically to assess the health of the entire array of bridges that constitute the Washington Bridge. It does seem like that bridge is coming down. I don't know why they won't just rip the Band-Aid off and come out and say it. This trickle-out effect has been extremely frustrating, and it just creates a level of distrust between the public and government that doesn't need to be there. Mm. I think you're also seeing that distrust among lawmakers. The fact that um, lawmakers are introducing a bill 
basically trying to require RIDOT to give them monthly updates instead of just saying, hey, can we have monthly updates, I think speaks to the lack of communication, the perception at least that they're not getting the full story, which it does seem like, you know, as Bill said, with every sort of new bit of information, there's also a little bit of um, rewriting of what the story was before. Um, so I think among lawmakers, even of the same political party, who are people who are allies, um, there is a, a little bit of um, tension, and, and you're starting to see the cracks, not just in the bridge. And, right. It's not directly analogous, but as you were speaking there, it reminded me of when Sen uh, Representative Patricia Morgan was trying to get those public records and they wanted to charge her like $4,500, <laughs> and it was like, you're a sitting legislator. Right. Shouldn't there be communication back and forth? I wonder, as, you, as you've covered this and watched, everybody wants to know, well, so the immediate is, we're going to hopefully get a bridge that solves this. Does anybody ever get held accountable? And I think that's the that's the overriding question a lot of Rhode Islanders. Who's yeah. responsible for this? I mean, I don't think you can say one person is responsible. I think it's like a series of, you know, at best missed signs, at worst, you know, flagrant negligence. Um, I think that Peter Alvidi obviously is the face of RIDA. I think he is at some point going to face some consequences, whether that's actually losing his job or just in the you know court of public opinion. I think Dan McKee too. I think um, between the bridge and the soccer stadium, Dan McKee is really under a lot of scrutiny right now um, because he's the he's the top guy, and the top guy takes the fall whether how however much he knew or or didn't know. And as Bill said, I think his handling of it whether it's not showing up to press conferences, yelling at reporters for asking questions about who should blame, um, just, just the whole thing, it, it, it's not helping his image. And even the federal government can't get the documents at this point. There had to be an extension granted. I mean, could you imagine if they're getting the aperture? Or what if they're sending them a bill for like two two thousand dollars <laughs> right. for? Uh... And then pages of fully redacted uh, information on it too. Exactly. Um, yeah, it, that's just to think that the federal government can't even get it is just you know insane. All right, a lot going on nationally. Uh, it looks like it's going to be Trump Biden 2.0. That's another thing, like the bridge coming down. What a shock, right? Um, and as we look toward the next election, Ray, you and I talked a lot last year. You did your senior project at Rick about where Gen Z fits in. And it's been an interesting dynamic now because a lot of the voters who came out for Biden in 20, minority, young, it, that is cracking a little bit. And I also wonder about the whole Palestinian-Israel issue. That's a big deal for a certain segment that's been strong for the president in the past. And it's a very interesting topic, and I, we've even talked about this outside of Lively when we're texting about where do we think they're going to lean or how do we think the results are going to go. I mean, we're still ten, like nine, eight, nine months out, so anything can happen between now and November for, for starters. Anything technically could happen in this primary, although it's likely the Trump-Biden uh, rematch. I look at how Gen Z views the issues, and a lot of those issues are aligning with where the Democratic Party's values are right now. And as we've seen in 2022, they gave Democrats a way better election result than any of us analysts thought was going to be. We thought it was going to be a red wave. It wasn't. And now even more Gen Zers are going to be of voting age, if not voting, in 2024. And there's a lot of, um, in, in my project, uh, Gen Z Ready to Govern, it's on YouTube. I had to do a little self-plug. A little but, plug there. Um, there's a lot of organizations like Gen, um, Voters of Tomorrow, um, Gen Z for Change, that are doing a lot of advocacy. And from what I've seen, 
they're on board with Biden. Not, I'm not going to say all the Gen Zers are going to back Biden. Obviously, polling is kind of showing that younger voters are, I guess, going to Trump. But then you also have to consider those are landline polls and young people. I mean, how many of them have a landline? So it's just there's just a lot of uh, factors to consider between now and November. But right now, I would say they're leaning toward Biden, and we'll see. But then you wonder if it's going to be, I'm just going to sit this out. As yeah. opposed to uh, Trump or Biden, I don't want either one. Yeah, I mean, as a millennial, not Gen Z, but I see among my peer group and definitely even, old, I think, voters across all demographics and age brackets, there's sort of a lack of enthusiasm for either candidate. And I think for a lot of the um, people who voted Democrat in 2022 in the midterms, there was um, sort of a lot of progressive candidates that really excited them. I think Biden's stance on Israel and Palestine for a lot of those progressive younger voters has really put him them off of him. Um, so I think that there is more, um, I'm, I'm like worried from a, a lowercase d democracy standpoint that a lot of people are just gonna be so kind of unenthusiastic that they don't vote at all or they vote third party which at this point is basically akin to not voting at all it's i remember sitting here on this set with lou polner what seems like a year ago and, and bemoaning the fact that we were likely heading towards trump biden and it's <laughs> it really is disappointing there's no question about it in my mind anyway that that's the case and look we saw that there is a protest vote of sorts that is that we saw in Michigan. We don't know if that will grow, if that people will say, I've got to make a pragmatic choice and vote for Biden because it's going to be better than Trump. Um, I, I don't know anybody in Gen Z or uh, who's a millennial who would say, uh, uh, maybe other than a handful of people that would vote for Trump. The question is whether or not they would come out for Biden. Do but you go home or do you stay home? Do you go home <laughs> or do you stay home? But, but let me say this as well. I don't know which camera am I on this one right here. Mr. President, Cease fire now. Cease fire now, Mr. President. Congressman Amo, Senators Whitehouse and Reid, cease fire now. Not only for your political career, but what is happening in Gaza is atrocious. All the preamble, what took place in Israel in October is horrific. The hostages are horrific. But we cannot move forward as a planet without a ceasefire now. And it's essential to Biden's political career and the future of this planet. Just one final thought to wrap up Gen Z's role in 2024 on the presidential level. In my documentary, I noticed, although there are some efforts from the Republicans to reach out to Gen Z, it's not as uh, thriving compared to the Democrats or even just like left-leaning uh, you know, politicians in general. I'll give an example. Uh, TikTok, although it's a controversial platform, and I think we've talked about this before, is a platform Gen Zers are on a lot. You don't really see... Trump on TikTok or Mitch McConnell on TikTok, but what you're seeing is stuff like the um, embracement of the Brandon name. Now you have like the account like Dark Brandon, which I don't know if that's the Biden campaign or like people who are fans of Biden, but you're seeing that. And then you're seeing a lot of other Democrat politicians take note of this, like Jeff Jackson who's running for attorney general in North Carolina, who's a congressman currently, but got gerrymandered out of his district. So it's just small things like that are gonna add up, whether it's just outreaching in general acknowledging the issues that they care about because in my documentary when I did interview I had quite a number of different uh, political ideologies showcased uh, two major parties and uh, the third parties like the libertarians and and all of them it just the, for the Republicans they didn't really say these are the issues that we're going to focus on to appeal to Gen Z other than like economics but uh, you know the 
the situation in Gaza, that's one big issue. But then there's other issues too, like reproductive rights, climate change, uh, gun control. There's a lot of issues out there that the right is just not focusing on at you this know, point. If we go back a couple of election cycles, if you look at Obama in 2012, 10, 8 to 10 million people who voted in that election sat out in 2016. And this is not a news story. I've told this before. I was one of those. First time in my life I never voted in a, in a presidential election. I voted for everybody else. I couldn't stomach Clinton and I couldn't stomach Trump. And I was probably like a lot of people thinking, ah, oh, Hillary Clinton's going to take it. And so I wonder whether that repeats itself. All those people who came out in 20 maybe they sit out in 24 because they can't stomach either candidate. I mean, it's a crystal ball question. Plus also, where does abortion and then this latest thing in, in Alabama, does that get people thinking about the Supreme Court? I, I think it does, and I think um, when you see things like how people are voting in Michigan, it, it shows that, that whatever is the latest news, particularly about things like reproductive rights, that sometimes I guess can be good in terms of mobilizing voters because it shows that there is a, a direct connection and a direct risk between who you vote for and your ability to, you know, freeze your eggs um, and, and save thought? your embryos. So. Yeah, and that wouldn't have happened probably if Roe. I mean, we wouldn't have. Uh, let's do this. Let's get, we'll get back to, uh, if we have extra time, uh, outrageous and or kudos. Bill, what do you have this week? The Narragansett Town Council is set to implement parking time restrictions on the Narragansett seawall. This is outrageous. This is outrageous. Now, the argument can be made that with turnover of different vehicles coming into the seawall, you're going to get more people in town, more money spent at businesses. The reality is that the Narragansett seawall is a destination free parking for people who don't want to pay for private parking or public parking that's paid for. The last thing you want to do is go down to Narragansett Beach and be glancing at your watch, worried that one of the volunteer high school kids are going to ticket you. <laughs> because you stay for three hours and 10 minutes on the beach. It's outrageous, it should not happen. And broad public support would tell you that, hey, or I should say broad public polling would tell you that people in town don't want this. If you have to pay five, six dollars for Dells, you might as at least get free parking, right? Raven, what do you have? I have a kudo, the Rick women's basketball team. You yeah. know, for, Rick graduate, I got a roof for the team. Undefeated so. this year. Exactly, and I think the last time was that 2021 COVID year. Mm -hmm. And also one thing that I noticed, Sophia Garrier is back on the team. She was working with us at the anchor during her time at Rick, but she was on that 2021 team, so that adds on to the team that already had good core players like Booth, Nardolillo, um, uh, Jones, and Medbury, Medbury. So, you know, I'm hoping they go all the way. Last year they went to the Final Four, and by the time this series, I think the first game will have started for uh, March Madness in the D3 tournament, which is tonight at the Murray Center. They face St. Joseph's College of Maine, so go anchor women. So not only does Raymond know all of the House and Senate bills, he knows the starting five for the Rick College women's. That's very personal. When guy. you run the anchor, you got you got to pay attention to the sports and all that. Nancy, what do you have? Um, I think my kudos would go to both PRI and Providence Journal have been doing these big series about the housing crisis, and I think it's very easy as a reporter even, I'm guilty of this, to sort of just use the phrase the housing crisis and not really explain what that means and all the different facets of it, and I think both PRI and the Providence Journal have done these really good multi-part deep dives looking at different facets of the cause and the effect on homeowners, renters, um, the, in, the trades industry, so I think that is definitely something that... Um, Kudos to both of them. I think what struck me of all the pieces was Tim White talked to the former head of the Builders Association. The guy said, it's never been worse. I mean, think of that. We've got hundreds of millions of dollars ready to go. And he said, for a variety of reasons, but it's never worse. And then Stephen Pryor saying, it's going to be 
two three to three years. years before we get in. So did that strike you too? Yeah, I mean, in some ways that's not, um, I think it's not surprising just because we wouldn't be where we are if things, if there was a booming construction industry or if housing units were being built quickly. But to have people sort of say that so directly is... Bluntly. Um, and these yeah. are the guys who know what they're talking right. about. Right. Right. Okay. Folks, that is all the time we have. We appreciate you spending some time with us this week. Ray, good to see you back. Nancy and Bill, good to have you. Uh, folks, if you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we're all over social media, Facebook, Twitter. I'll call it Twitter. Um, and we archive all of our shows at ripbs.org slash lively or your favorite podcast. Uh, I know we're competing with the Bartholomew Town podcast, but you can take us along wherever you go. Come back here next week, folks. We'll have a full recap of the week's activities and a full analysis with our panel as the Lively experiment continues. We hope you have a great weekend. The Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.